Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where we talk about Ari's experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the other medical stories he has that happened in his life. <laughs> and I've just officially decided I'm going to stop trying to awkwardly shoehorn the fact that I'm your wife into these introductions because okay. the way I see it, this is a chronological story. People really benefit from starting at the beginning and listening the whole way through. Mm-hmm. If somebody's jumping in now and I need to explain that I'm your wife, they should probably just go back and listen to the beginning. I encourage people to do it that way. Yeah, especially because then you can hear your theme music many, many, many more times. So in the last episode, we talked about the period of time right after your kidney transplant from your uncle Michael. Mm-hmm. And the procedures you were doing to ensure long-term health and protect your kid- your new kidney against rejection. Right. And we left off, we were talking about both your plans to go to Central Washington University. Yes. And we also talked about how you had to get this liver biopsy done because you were having all <laughs> these weird swelling in your body. Right. What were the results of that biopsy? What turned out to be the culprit? Well, that was one of those things where... Over the course of about six months, probably, I saw a lot of different doctors. And this time it was only like six, so maybe it wasn't a lot for my my medical history, but a number of them. And they did all of those tests, and they they came to one of those conclusions that sometimes happens in medicine where they have to say, we're not sure, but it's like this, and so here's here are the solutions we're going to propose or the things that you should do to mitigate it. We can't pinpoint it's actually this specific thing. And so, the, the mystery, we're not totally sure kind of symptoms and illness <laughs> is a real running theme throughout your life, but especially in this period of your life, these next several episodes we're going to get into. Yeah, uh, right. Or or there's other things where, like, as a child, they said, oh, we don't know it could be causing this. And then they later were like, well, of course it was this. Um, that's sort of the secondary theme in that way. In this case, they basically said, it's something with your liver and it's something with sodium. And so the solution was eliminate almost all sodium from my diet. You know, as a kidney patient, you're on a low-sodium diet. So, like, if you're in the hospital, you get a special restricted diet. They will only give you certain things, and I had been in the hospital, obviously. Um, but this became, like, a no-sodium diet. And so Which I had... Which is really difficult to do. Sodium's yeah, in everything. It's in everything, especially in American food, but just everything, everything. And so I had to um, mail order, at the time anyway... Uh, a lot of different products to try to make things possible. You know, at the grocery store, you can try to go to the right grocery store or something and find, say, uh, chicken breasts, but ones that haven't been brined, because that's a pretty common thing that they do. But you can find the kind that hasn't been or other products like that. Vegetables are usually not a problem. But anytime you want to have some kind of sauce or flavoring or something to cook with or to put on salad or anything like that, it's all got a ton of sodium in it. And so um, even if you kind of want to make something sort of from scratch, so I had to – there are a couple companies out there that cater to this sort of thing for uh, largely – heart patients, but also for weirdos like me. And so we started ordering that kind of stuff. The The weird part about that is that they tend to replace the salt with sugar because they don't want to eliminate flavor. And so you get some stranger flavor combinations than you're used to. This was the worst ever substitute food I ever had with you was the Caesar salad dressing. Oh, gosh, yeah. And... They had just, yeah, anything that was salty in Caesar's salad dressing instead was sweet. Mm-hmm. It was a really bad sensory experience. Yeah, because you expect one thing and then get another. Once you're sort of used to it, then that's a flavor you're eating. But it's, you know, we like salt. <laughs> and it, it was missing from a lot of things. Um, you know, as a child, I loved ketchup. I was one of, you know, all the children who loved ketchup and they make a like a no salt ketchup, but it's sweet, and that just tastes really wrong to me. Um, so that that like no to extremely low sodium diet then ended up lasting about a year, year and a half, 
And then I was doing better. The symptoms kind of had completely subsided, and they said, okay, slowly start adding it back. And I did, and I was okay. And during this time, so we said you're preparing to go to Central Washington University. Yes. Um, what kinds of special things did you have to do to prep to go to college, or how did you interface with their disability office? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a thing where, you know, I was still like, not wanting to say I was disabled, but recognizing that I might need some stuff, some accommodations, <laughs> which is a word that, uh, well, came up here. So, uh, the university has a disability office. It's pretty robust and they really want you to take advantage of it. And so I called them up and I explained my situation. There's basically two components. One is that my immune system is suppressed. And so I get sick easily. And that is a difficult thing to accommodate. Um, within like rules of a university and the things that need to get done in a university as a student. And then the other thing is I'm hearing impaired. And that's a thing that they're pretty familiar with at most schools. Um, even in high school, I had um, an IEP, which is an individualized education plan that allowed me, if I wanted to, to essentially ask any teacher I had to assign or ask for volunteers for someone to take notes every day for me if I couldn't hear. It also allowed for preferential seating so I could sit in the front. That's a common thing so you can so I can hear. Did you ever ask for people to take notes? Mm, I tried it once or twice and it just didn't work because I learned far better if I was the one taking the notes. So I just sat in front and got really used to if I miss something, either asking somebody sat near me or more than likely after class going up to the teacher and saying, hey, I, I think I missed this. What's the deal with this? Uh, it really wasn't much of a problem. And in college especially, they're far less likely to have assigned seats. And so if you get there early, you can sit wherever. And there's lots of people who want to sit in the back often. Anyway, it wasn't a problem. So Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself though. So I, I called the disability office and I, like I said, I explained my issues and they said, well, okay, you know, what can we do for you? And I kind of said, well, nothing. I mean, I don't want to be rude, but I'm good. I just wanted to kind of put myself on your radar in the off chance that I need somebody to advocate for me. I don't want to just show up and be like, Hey, I've got all these issues. Here I am. Help me. And. They were a little bit flummoxed by that. Um, I remember the person I was on the phone with talking about like, well, no, you have to like come in and fill out forms and do all this stuff. And me saying, I, I don't really need to do that. I'm, I'm good. Like I know how to manage all of this stuff. I don't need somebody to take notes for me, especially in music classes. That's almost impossible. It's ridiculous. And, um, you know, the, the transplant stuff I need to contact the health center mostly for. And she got a little panicked and said, no, but we, we, we want, we need to accommodate you. And I said, <laughs> like, I'm good. Like, what are you going to do for me? Well, I, we're, we're going to accommodate you. And she kept using this word that it does mean something, but it, it started to become, uh, a little bit meaningless with that, that, uh, more, that interaction, the more she used it. But I did, I did register with them. I went and met with them and kind of had a longer conversation. The irony, of course, was that at that time, the disability office was on the second or third floor, very, very, very far from an elevator, which wasn't a problem for me. But I remember going to the building and like following the signs and I had to go up like two flights of stairs and then down three long hallways. And I was going, this doesn't seem well thought out and it's not the disability office's fault. I'm Form isn't following function here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that they thought about it and said, hey, we're the disability office. Um, that's, of course, not the actual name. They're not the disability office, but that's kind of how I think of them or what I call them. They, there's a, it's probably a disability accommodation office or something like that. But so I, I did that. I contacted the health center and said, hey, I need to arrange for regular blood draws. And they said, yeah, no problem. We do that all the time. Do you need a doctor? And I said, no, if I need a doctor, either I will drive home or someone will come pick me up because it was a four to six hour drive, depending on numerous factors, um, from Ellensburg, where Central Washington is, to uh, my parents' house and to the, the hospital. So those were the, the main things, I think. Was there anything else that you had to do to get prepped or to adjust to going back to school? 
Well, as part of going to a residential university, you need to do housing. And there was a form, you know, there's a form for everything. And so I got out the map because I had been to campus once and I, I got out the map and looked at where all the dorms were. And I just said, okay, I think this dorm should be my first choice because it's really close to the music building. And I, you know, I put some other choices, but I just, I said that and kind of forgot about it, honestly. And then I was at, it wasn't orientation. It was a, like, before you go to school here, now it's July and we would like to have everybody do a registration and sort of housing and other pre-move-in bonanza. So we went to various uh, meetings. I went to a place where I registered for classes, and then I was standing in line for housing, and it was a very long line. And it was really just to get, here's your packet, this is where you're going to live. And I was standing and waiting, and this woman came up to me and said, oh, are, are you Aaron? Which is my legal name. And I said, uh, yes. And she said, oh, come with me. I'm so glad to meet you. I was like, well, that's unusual. All right. So I went with her uh, to this small little building, which turned out to be at least one of the housing offices. And in this this place, there were a lot of uh, sort of small family units, usually like moms and, and daughters, all of whom were trying to make some kind of special argument for a special housing, not accommodation, but just my my child is a special person who should not have to share a dorm room with someone because reasons. <laughs> and I was very confused as to why I was there. And they asked me to wait, and I waited for like half an hour. And then she came out and sat with me. And she said, yeah, so we were looking at your application. You applied for this dorm. And I said, yeah, I didn't really know where to live, but it's really near the music building. She said, well, that's actually a freshman dorm, and we noticed that you're a little bit older. And I was like, yeah, I, I am. I'm not definitely not a freshman, and I'm, you know, in my late 20s now. And she said, well, we, we actually have housing that's sometimes for grad students and other people like that, and we think this would be a much better fit for you. Nice. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. And I, I think I asked, is it going to cost more or anything else? And she was like, oh, no, it's just, it's just this place here. And so I basically got a little condo on campus, um, which was in this little area. That, like she said, my neighbors were grad students in other departments. And um, it was really neat. You know, it was like a, like a condo. Like I said, it's sort of like a one-bedroom apartment, had a kitchen, had living room, bathroom, uh, closet space. It was, it was really nice. And I just kind of walked out of there going, Hey, okay. For once, something has, uh, turned to be, uh, turned out to be a benefit for being older and, and things. Cause that was a thing. This is going a little far afield from your question, but that was the thing that I was nervous about. Well, that was going to be one of my later questions is what is it like going to a regular or traditional undergraduate program when you're in your late twenties? Um, in many ways, it's just fine. You know, it's just normal. But there are ways in which it's also weird because, um, you know, being older doesn't necessarily matter unless it matters to you. And it mostly didn't matter to me. I was just there to learn stuff. Um, and it mostly doesn't matter to the other students unless they really care about how old they are. But at the same time, well, educationally, we were kind of at the same point in our lives Socially and other ways emotionally, we really weren't. Um, I mean, and you could argue that because of all of my health issues throughout my life, I was already kind of in a different emotional place, even just going to Lawrence. But I was older. I had seen and done many more things. Um, some of my pop culture references and other things were significantly different. Uh, it was also complicated by sort of two factors where one was like I said, the professor that I went to study with was somebody I had studied with in high school. So like I knew him. We knew each other by first names. I knew his wife. I knew his kids. We'd known each other for a long time. And suddenly he was professor so-and-so, which was just an adjustment. It wasn't a big deal, but it was like, oh, right. I have to kind of... You've got to rewrite that pathway in your brain. Yeah, just a little bit. And also, sort of coincidentally, one of the students that I had taught at Westview who was a senior my first year there, 
uh, was going to Central Washington in the percussion department. And she had been a private student of mine, um, really good student, uh, great academically, great musically. And we were then in a department together. And she, like, seniority is sort of a thing and sort of not a thing within music departments. But to the extent that it's a thing, she definitely had it over me, which I think, like, both of us were pretty much okay with. But for the first few months, it was a little weird because it was a transition from me being her teacher to us essentially being colleagues. So, you know, it was weird, but it was, it was also, it was, it was okay. Weird, but fine. Weird, but fine. Your catchphrase. Yeah. And so being back at school with this new kidney transplant, what's that like and how is it going? It was really great. It was an adjustment yet again, of course, because I hadn't been a student for about five, six years at that point. And you kind of get out of practice doing that. And in, in my case, I was also literally out of practice because I had been so busy teaching that I had not had as much time to practice as regularly and diligently and like just as much in terms of bulk of time to practice my instruments and reading music as a player as opposed to as a teacher uh, for a number of years at that point. So my uh, my chops, my muscles were kind of... Out of, out of practice and um, all those skills were rusty. And so, you know, you have to audition for ensembles at the beginning of the semester so they can place you in whichever groups you should be. And I came in and my professor was like, I know this guy, he should probably be in our top groups. Um, but then I played and it wasn't that great an audition. And it was not an audition like worthy of being in those groups. And so I found myself like it was a bit of an ego blow to be in just like kind of the ensembles that a freshman or sophomore would usually be in, uh, even though I was sort of a late sophomore junior credit wise. And, and I would, you know, and experience wise and technically skill wise. Um, and so I, I was, I was in that place and I went, okay, but you know what? This is what I got to do. And so I, I had fun and I learned and I practiced and I got back into the swing of things. And, but that was just nice. It was nice also just to be back in groups playing and practicing for lessons every day and back in theory classes and music history classes and learning about that stuff that I had been very interested in learning about and, you know, had done a little bit of on my own. But there's something special about learning about a thing that you're passionate about in a class setting with other people that are passionate about it. And so I got to do that again. There I was doing that, and it was really nice. Uh, and then, you know, time passed. I got got my chops back, got back into the swing of things, and other people got to know me and got to know my playing. And so then I was asked to play in uh, better ensembles or uh, more prestigious groups, I suppose. You know, and so I was enjoying that, and I, uh, I, I really was having a really good time. And I felt like... Um, I had been waiting, and then I, there I was. I was back back on track, back on this path to what I was still viewing kind of as normalcy. Like, okay, well, took a little detour there, but now life is finally starting again. This is what it's supposed to be. Right, right. And even though the detour was also sort of, it was almost like a shortcut. The detour being like teaching at Westview, teaching Crusaders, like it felt like a shortcut. I hadn't really finished the schooling. I wasn't officially certified. I didn't have a degree, but I was doing a lot of the teaching that I really wanted to do. And it was at about the time that all of my friends and colleagues were also starting that kind of career. It was when I was like, quote unquote, the right age to be doing that. Because I was supposed to graduate college in about 2000, and I started teaching in Westview at about 2000. And so, okay, here I am, like 22, I'm doing all the teaching stuff. But I sort of skipped all the actual stuff you're supposed to do before you do that. You were pulling a Professor Harold Hill? Yes, I was indeed, um, without the cheating other people stuff, I think. But but then here I was, like, back on the, like, the real regular path, which felt like the right thing to me, and that that was really nice and comforting. Well, this is a question that I wanted to ask you here anyway, which is, we talked about in our second episode how much music meant to you, and even how mm -hmm. that tied into sort of your feelings about your health and how it helped you. Yeah. And you talked about when you went to Lawrence and in choosing Central Washington later, 
you wanted to be a music educator. Right. So why music education? Why not performance? What is it about music education and being a teacher that's so important to you? By the time I was at Central, certainly, but even before that, in high school, you know, I was getting sicker and sicker and we didn't know what was going on, as we've described now a number of times. One of the things that really, really kept me going, and I would argue, and I think other people would argue, sometimes the only thing that really kept me going, like getting to school or just day to day, was was the music stuff I was doing. Was my private lessons, was my Portland New Philharmonic rehearsals, was stuff that we were doing in marching band and concert band, in the occasional toe dips I made into jazz band at school, playing in school musical pits, all of those things that many people view as extracurriculars, as extra, and as should come second to academics, which I did and still think are very important, um, were the things that were keeping me going, were the things that I could like look forward to, even though I felt awful, I had this crushing headache, I couldn't move or walk or whatever. And knowing that, at a certain point, and there's no way to say this without feeling like it, at least, like it seems corny, like I felt, and I still feel, like I could, at least in part, maybe give that help to other kids that, I mean, it doesn't have to be me, but <laughs> I would like it to be me. You know, there are kids who are really into writing poetry, and so English classes for them. And there are kids who are really into football, and so passing all your classes you can be on the football team is for them. And there are lots and lots of things like that. And for some kids, it's band. For some kids, it's choir or orchestra. But I'm not good at singing or playing string instruments. I'm pretty good at band. And so I wanted to provide that and be, be one of the many people providing that. That was really, really important to me. And then I had, you know, by the time we're at the time or period we are now, I had had four years of doing that. And honestly, a lot, a lot of the kids that I had just been teaching for four years would have been okay without band. They were doing all right. Um, but I think their lives, I think, <laughs> were a lot better because of band. And in, in my years since then, I, I get, I've gotten to see and teach in places where they don't have as many things and as many opportunities outside of band or outside of school. Uh, so band becomes kind of the thing that some of, some of my kids, um, have. So in this first year at Central Washington. Yeah. Did any other medical things come up? How did your health, how was your health going that year? Pretty great for a while. Haha, <laughs> for a while. I know. It's always for a while. Uh, that first semester was pretty smooth sailing. Like I said, it was good. I was back, back in the saddle. I was, uh, you know, playing and making friends and learning stuff and reminding myself of stuff that I had learned years ago. And it was good. Over winter break, <laughs> late at night, I was, sitting at my computer. I was, I don't know, composing or doing email or something. And I used to sit in this weird kind of crunched over way at my desk. And all of a sudden, I had this intense pain in my abdomen, like I had never had before. And I couldn't really tell exactly where it was coming from. It was somewhere, it was around my belly button. I couldn't tell if it was inside. It clearly wasn't outside. It hurt, 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 hurt. And I went to like touch my belly button in that area and it just hurt even worse. On the one to 10 pain scale. Oh, that's definitely would have been like an eight or maybe a nine. Yeah. Really? It, it was very shockingly painful and it was sudden. So this, this was an eight or nine. <laughs> well, this is the time I can remember that it was. It really hurt and I didn't know what to do. I tried like, pushing on it a little bit. Maybe I, I, I didn't know. And that just hurt even worse. It was super tender. And I, I was scared. And I weirdly, I was a little bit embarrassed. Um, Cause it was, it was probably like one in the morning or something. Everybody was asleep. And so I briefly thought maybe I can just get in bed and like sleep through it and it'll feel better in the morning. This right here is astounding to me. 
with all of your experience, with all the things yeah. that are happening to you, you're having extreme mystery pain in your abdomen where your transplanted organ is, and you think, maybe I'll just sleep on it. Yeah. Well, it definitely wasn't the kidney. Like, I knew where the kidney was. I could touch the kidney. It was fine. It wasn't that. But it, it was a not a great idea. And that lasted, let's say, 45 seconds. It was not... Like, I lay down and went, oh, this is not happening. It just hurts worse. So I went and I knocked on my parents' bedroom door, and I apologized profusely for waking them up. And I said... I'm having this massive amount of pain. I don't know what it is. I think we need to go to the emergency room. And so my poor benighted father <laughs> looked at me and said, really? And I said, yeah, really, I don't know what it is. And so I, like we kind of, he kind of got dressed and I kind of, I, I think I put on some sweatpants or something. And then he drove me to the emergency room and the doctor came in and looked at, at it. And after just a couple of little experimental touches went, oh, you have a hernia. Hang on. And he put, he reached out and he put his finger on my belly button. And I was terrified because I had tried touching it and it was super tender. And I tried pushing on it a little bit and it hurt so much. He hurt even worse. And he just went boop and he pushed the hernia back in. He basically just pushed my belly button back in <laughs> and all the pain went away. And I felt so stupid. Like, oh, all I needed to do was put that tiny bit more pressure on it, just like breathe through for a split second and it would have been fine. Hey, that's what, that's what you go to medical school that's for. That's what he, exactly. That's what his degree was, was for there. Um, but it of course was good that we've discovered it was a hernia because if I had just pushed it in and been like, great, yay, then that would have been a disaster. That would have been a disaster. So he said, okay, this is called an umbilical hernia. It's right in your belly button where the umbilicus is. For anybody who doesn't know, can you just quickly explain what a hernia is? Oh, a hernia is where um, a tiny tear occurs in your abdominal muscles wall, the wall of those abdominal muscles, and a little bit of intestine pops out through that tear. That's what a hernia is. Sorry, I just wasn't expecting that explanation to be so gross, even though I do know what a hernia is. <laughs> so that's what it was. Um, and he popped it back in and he said, um, you're going to need to get that stitched up. We can't do that right now, but it can wait. This is not an emergency kind of thing. It can wait until we can schedule it. And so we scheduled it for mid-February. And part of the reason for that, I think, was because that's when I had some kind of maybe midwinter break or a four-day weekend or something from school. And he showed, he said, like, if it pops out again and hurts, just push it back in like I did. And if it ever, like, really, really hurts, you know, let us know and things. But it'll just be a couple stitches. It's not a big deal. You're okay. Is it very disconcerting to think of your body as so malleable that you can just push organs into different places. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. In in my case, he pointed out that uh, the abdominal wall there was fragile because it had been cut through so many times. And that, you know, there's a scar that goes right there. Right. All your transplant surgeries and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just a whoopsie. It was, uh, which can happen, you know, if you're straining or something. But in my case, like it was actually physically weakened by um, an incision that had that was there. So I went back to school, and I had been in touch with the fencing club because I really enjoyed fencing and I wanted to get back into it. Um, I knew I wasn't eligible for NCAA, but that didn't matter anymore. I just wanted to fence. And so they they got back to me and they said, hey, you know, we're having practices this time and, and stuff. And I was like, cool, I actually can't fence for a couple months because I have to have this hernia surgery. And they're like, well, okay. But I, I went and um, I, I kind of hung out with them and, and got to like direct, which is judging for a while. And that was, that was really fun until I had the hernia surgery. And then I, I did get to fence with them. But the hernia surgery was like probably the smallest surgery I had had since I had like tubes in my ears when I was two and a half or three. Um, it was really nice. Just a couple of little stitches and then my belly button looked different and I was fine. Well, cool. Yeah. So you go back after this surgery. Mm -hmm. You're fencing again. You're in school again. Right. So what happens next? What happens in the rest of your first year at Central Washington? Things go pretty well. Uh, the second semester went fine. I was uh, 
you know, doing well in my lessons, doing well in my classes, just really excited to kind of get things going in the interest of trying to graduate more quickly. And, you know, also so that I wasn't bored over the summer, I started preparing to take summer classes. I signed up for several things just to get some stuff out of the way, you know, uh, required classes like biology and stuff for the summer sessions. And that way I could keep my cool little condo. Towards the end of the year, though, I started, like, I started feeling a little bit run down, a little bit more tired and just occasionally I would have kind of an upset stomach. And that wasn't fun, but I didn't really think much of it. I was pushing towards the end. I had a jury to play, which is a performance final. I had concerts. I had all kinds of stuff and I was, I was doing fine. You know, I, I really was doing fine. I finished all that up. I was so excited because it was literally the first time I had started a year at college and taken all the classes I had signed up for for the entire year. I hadn't done that at Portland State. I hadn't done that at Lawrence, but I finally did it. At Central Washington, I was super stoked. It was great. That's an, an interesting small victory. Yeah, yeah. It, it <laughs> I felt a little, I think a little weird, a little embarrassed about it. But at the same time, by that point, I was starting to kind of go, okay, but my life is different from other people's. Good for me. Yay. Pat myself on the back. I, I completed a year. I've never done that before. That is difficult for me, and I did it. So I was really happy about that. Um, but I remember that... There was sort of an end-of-year party. Classes were either almost out or were just out that some friends were holding. It was like a barbecue. I went over there, and I remember being there and just feeling like a little bit nauseous, a little bit stomach not okay, and it wasn't very fun. And I ended up just kind of sitting on the couch for a while, and one of my friends came up to me. I think I think it was who was hosting the party. and was like, hey, you doing okay? And I said, yeah, I don't, my, just feel kind of not solid in my tummy. And she said, well, you know, sometimes food really helps. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't think I've really eaten today. It was like two in the afternoon, which was dumb, but um, I had done that that day. So she went, she got me some food and I tried it and it like, it, it was very good, but it actually didn't help. So I went home. I think I just like, I took a nap or something. Careful listeners of this podcast may, may recognize heavy foreshadowing. Uh, so that, that was going on a little bit at the end of the at the end of that year. So at this point, I have to kind of back up a little bit um, to kind of change tracks because these things start to intertwine. Right. We were talking about this a little bit before we began recording this run of episodes. Mm -hmm. And I realize this is a funny thing I'm about to say, but this is a really dramatic period of your life. Yeah. Even relatively speaking, it's very crowded and several things happen at once and the timeline does start to get muddled. So we're... <laughs> yeah. Ari mostly, but both of us together are going to try to navigate through these next several episodes and get it as accurately as we can. Yeah, yeah. So, so you and I had been talking on the phone. We'd been IMing for several months at that point, you know, hanging out as friends, basically. And that was really nice. Uh, and my youngest cousin was about to graduate from high school in... Northern California in Berkeley, and I was going to go down to his graduation, which I was really excited about after classes got out. And so basically I was going to come home to Portland, see my family for a few days, and then we were all going to go on a plane down, down to the Bay Area together. And this is your uncle Michael's son. Right. This is Michael's son. We were all going, and I definitely obviously wanted to go as well. And so... I came home and also I had, I think sort of, I, I had arranged a date with you that I don't know if you considered it a date and I considered it a date, but it was one of those kind of transition things. Like, are we going to be friends still or are we going to shift into a different kind of relationship? And I obviously wanted to do the second one and I was pretty sure that you did too, but it was supposed to be on... June 14th that we were going to go do that, but I got home and I was having some weird stomach stuff and I'd gotten home a few days before that and um, I ended up being in the hospital on June 14th. They were just sort of taking some time, gave me some fluids, looked at me and said, okay, 
you're fine. Just take care of yourself. They, I don't remember them coming to any real conclusions. I was just in the hospital for a few days, but you came and visited me. I did. Which was very nice. And so... That's um, the first time I ever met your mother. Yeah, which is, you know, maybe not the way you want to meet um, what turns out to be a future in-law. Uh, but yeah. Well, no, she, she was great, obviously, but she had no idea who I was and you were sort of sick and hadn't talked to me yet, so you weren't in the mood to clarify. Right. And I hadn't really said, Hey, there's this really, <laughs> this really cool woman who's going to come visit me in the hospital, by the way. <laughs> be, be cool, mom. You know, I had just, you showed up and she was like, Okay, here's this person. <laughs> um, but you know, she's my mom, so she handled it really well. Yeah. So then I, they released me from the hospital with kind of nothing lost, nothing gained. And then on the 16th, we like, we went on our rescheduled date. And that was important because the next morning we flew down to Berkeley. I didn't fly down to Berkeley. Right. We, my, my parents and I flew down to Berkeley. And that's, that was the start of us dating. But <laughs> it was also the start of, the summer of really not fun stomach issues for me went down graduation went off really great it was a really big fun party for everybody involved and then uh, we were there for several days on the plane home i spent most of the flight and i apologize this is a little graphic but i spent most of the flight in the airplane bathroom barfing um and i kind of didn't know why and um i was very uncomfortable and uh there was also a moment because I was mostly there, but a couple of times I came back to the seat. And one of the times I went to the bathroom, I had forgotten to lock the bathroom door because I was in a hurry. And, you know, you're supposed to for lots of obvious reasons. And so some poor younger than eight year old child thinking that the bathroom was unoccupied kind of burst in on me mid um, evacuation, as it were, uh, on this plane, looked horrified and fled. And I wanted to say, I'm sorry, but like, how do you even apologize to a kid for a traumatic experience like that? So that was bad, obviously. And that meant that kind of, I got home, I, you know, I called you and, um, I told my parents, Hey, so, you know, that stomach stuff I was having, it seems like it's not really gone away. And, they called my doctors, or probably I called my doctors, and they said, oh, maybe you should come back to the hospital again. And I have to admit that this summer, there's a lot of details that are really hazy for a lot of probably obvious reasons. You know, when your body's in pain, um, your body releases chemicals that kind of inhibit your memory. And so I was in a lot of discomfort at the very least really often, and um, I don't remember some of the timelines. So... I went to the hospital for a while. I don't remember what they did while I was there. I don't even remember how long I was in the hospital at this point. I can fill in a little bit of the gaps because okay. we're getting into the part of the story where I can be there as a witness. Yes. So you were there during that time, I think for about a week or maybe a little longer than a week. Okay. And this stomach stuff is going to persist for several episodes, I think. <laughs> yeah. It, you, this, is, this is a problem for a very long time. And kind of, they never, until the very end, knew what was wrong. Right. And so it was always they were playing this probability. So, oh, it seems like he's having all these stomach troubles. Okay, well, he's on this one medication that has that as one of the side effects. That seems like the most likely thing. We're going to take him off of that and switch him to this, and that'll probably right. stop it. And there were, oh, maybe he needs to change and not eat this and do this. And there, so there were several things that were changes or swaps based on what's the next most likely thing that be, could be causing this problem. Yeah. It was like a very dull long form episode of house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um doctors were not as uh pre-approved for TV, I would say, but um but very caring and really good at their jobs even though they were having a ton of trouble figuring out what was going on. So right. So I was I was in the hospital for a short-ish but also longer than most people stay in the hospital period of time. They tried some stuff, I got better, and having gotten better, I went back up to Ellensburg because there were classes that I had registered to take. And the thing was, I went to the first meeting of the biology class I was going to take. I, I know I was signed up for like five things, and that's the only class I remember because I actually went to the first meeting. And I was intrigued by it. It seemed like it was going to be for a 
credit requirement, a pretty cool class. I was also in that class with a bunch of other percussionists that I knew and liked, which was awesome. And uh, we were like, cool, we'll all be like lab partners together and we all have to do this. So let's just do it together. It'll be a good time. And I was looking forward to it. But kind of immediately I got sick again or not again, still like symptoms came back because they hadn't fixed anything, um, unfortunately. And so that was the last class I went to. Uh, kind of a, a sweet little note to that was that about a month later, after I had maybe even officially put in papers to drop from that class, I think I emailed the professor saying, hey, I'm really sorry this is going on. I am not going to be taking your class. And he said, oh, I have a grade for you, though. And I was like, okay, how's that possible? And then he looked into it, and it turned out that these other percussionists had been doing the work and just including me. Oh. Yeah, they put my name on the lab work, which, you know, is not exactly um, kosher, but was really nice. And it was because they assumed, okay, he's going to come back. And so for, they didn't get any trouble. It was, it was totally okay, but. You, you clarified the situation. Yeah, I clarified and he was, he was fine with it. And, and, um, then I emailed them and said, thank you. At a certain point, obviously I had withdrawn from these classes. You would come visit me several times. It was really nice. And, but at a certain point I got, I was just too sick and I had been, again, this is sort of graphic, but I had been throwing up and I'd been having diarrhea very regularly and painfully for, quite a while and like too often and too regularly. Um, and so I called my parents and I said, I think I need to come home, which is not something I ever expected or wanted to have to say, but I did. And they immediately swung into action. I think they contacted some of my friends at the school. I probably maybe helped. And in the course of a day, they and my friends, while I kind of sat around and said that thing, I need it too gathered up all my stuff, cleaned the the condo and packed everything away and they drove me home and I went to the hospital. This would have been August-ish, if I remember correctly. And you spent most of the rest of the summer in the hospital. Yeah, my memory is it was four to six weeks in the hospital. Yeah. It's a really, really long time to be in the hospital. And you were feeling terrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was the right call. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's a, that's the kind of thing where when you make a big call like that, you don't know if it's the right call. You don't know. Well, Could I hack I, it if I stayed? Right. Am I going to get better tomorrow? Am I being overdramatic? You know, sometimes I go a day or two without throwing up because the terribleness has become your new normal. And I'm saying you, but had become my new normal. And that was bad. And so... The fact that I was in the hospital for that long was largely because they were, like you said earlier, trying thing after thing after thing, process of elimination. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this, and they couldn't figure it out. Well, and sometimes they had different suspicions. They were doing colonoscopies and endoscopies. Oh, yeah, lots. And trying to figure out even where the problem in your digestive system was. Because uh-huh. I remember stomach, small intestine, large intestine. Yeah, many scopes were put into my body from different directions. Many scans were done. Lots and lots and lots of blood was taken. Lots of drugs were switched in and out, back and forth. You know, I'm not sure if this is the the time. It was either this stay or another one related where because there were enough doctors who were kind of involved in this investigation they would order multiple blood tests and sometimes they should have been talking to each other or should have been able to see my chart, but sometimes paths would get crossed. And I was having blood taken multiple times every day, usually at about 6 a.m. was the first one, which is kind of typical for the hospital. They come in, turn on all the lights and then jab your arm and it's not fun. And what happened one morning was somebody came in, did the the deal at at like 6 a.m., and took a lot of blood. They they usually took a lot of blood, but they took more than usual. And then an hour later, maybe two hours later, a different person came back and said, okay, it's time for your blood draw, and had as many blood vials or possibly more to fill up. And I said, hold on a second, what are these tests? Because I already gave blood this morning. And 
you know, the person does, they know maybe what their, the tests are, but they don't know why or who ordered them necessarily. They're a tech. That's not their job. And I, I said, like, if you need the blood, take the blood, but I would like to know because I think there's some duplication going on here. And the tech. And I only have so much to give. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the, the, the tech was like, well, I don't know and left. And then <laughs> a little while later, one of my doctors and his team, because each doctor has a team um, of med students and interns and, and people like, so he came in and he was very upset. And I'm pretty sure had read my chart going back to, you know, transplant failure for non-compliance and said, you're being non-compliant. We need this blood right now. And I said, hold on a second. Like you can take all the blood you need. I really want this figured out. I believe you're trying to figure it out. I had a lot of blood drawn at 6 a.m. And then you wanted a whole bunch more blood drawn at 7. And all I wanted to make sure was that you weren't duplicating efforts. If you need a chem panel and you've already got one, I would prefer not to be poked again. If you need another CBC and you've already got one, I'd prefer not to be poked again. And it took like a little while of talking to this guy for him to realize that I wasn't just going like, no, I don't want to do any medical stuff <laughs> that I was trying to actually kind of help. And this is something where, again, it's hard for me to talk about, even mm-hmm. though I guess I am electing to. The desire on the part of this team sometimes to label you as non-compliant or to force this narrative on you where mm-hmm. you're this screw up, especially because this is when I start to become part of your life in a very serious way. Right. Made me mad and sometimes still makes me mad. <laughs> yeah. To this day. Yeah. And I think about that when we make this podcast, I try really hard to make sure if I'm going to say anything bad that there's a good reason for doing so, that it's not good to be negative publicly, especially about people who worked really hard and did try to help you. Mhm. But <laughs> this is a case and there will be other cases where the problem here was these teams weren't communicating yeah. and they were poking you and doing additional tests that weren't necessary to you medically. And they came, this guy comes in with a full head of steam thinking you're being the bad child. How naughty that you weren't doing your tests. Yeah. Yeah. And that any attempt to advocate for yourself is seen as this, this bad thing on your part and a bad thing about your character. Mm-hmm. And especially some of the things that are going to happen later. And yeah. some of the bad things that happen to you. And I guess the point of saying this, since if you're going to be negative, there should be a purpose, is that it's important to advocate for yourself as much as you can. Yeah. And for your loved ones. And that that can recognize that that, that, can, be, that can be precarious. And that people will sometimes want to blow that back on you and label you, even when it's not your fault. Yeah. Um, I fully agree. And it, this actually brings up an, another thing that I kind of, I feel like I've touched on, but I, I want to maybe talk about here if, if we have time. Um, first of all, just a little side note that's kind of interesting is this wasn't even at OHSU. This is not, these are not my transplant doctors who, you know, were super upset at the initial, you know, so-called non-compliance issue. These are a whole separate set of doctors who are looking at those medical records. Right. It's the peril of having a scarlet letter in your chart. It really is. But the other thing that I... I think about a lot and have been thinking about for years and especially as we've been working on this project is that, you know, I think you can hear me over and over and over say words like, I think, I don't know, I don't remember. And those are real feelings. I really do think that's what happened. I really may not remember. But as a result of uremia that I have had at multiple times during my life as a result of dialysis, which really can wreak havoc on your system. Um, it's a, it's a brute force method of keeping you healthy in kind of heavy air quotes. My memory is inconsistent. There are days where it's great and there are days where it's not. And there are minutes where it's great and minutes where it's not. And that expands to lots of other areas. There are, times or moments where my cognition is just a little or very fuzzy. Uh, I will lose my vocabulary briefly. It gets very strange sometimes inside my head to be talking about something and go, I know there's this word. It is exactly what I mean to use. I can't think of that word. Um, 
Obviously, this can make teaching a challenge sometimes when you're trying to describe something. And it can definitely make trying to remember a linear-ish uh, narrative like this very challenging. But the other thing is that I know this is true about me. It's been true about me for a long time. And it makes me second-guess myself a lot. And most of those times, I should. But not always. And I can't tell the difference. Right. You never know. I never know. And so, you know, when a doctor, an authority figure, somebody I'm used to relying on comes in and says, you're doing this bad thing. Obviously, we need to do this. I start to go, oh, no, oh, maybe I am wrong. And I want to advocate for myself. I'm pretty sure. But I've been sure about things that were completely wrong before. And right, of course, as detailed disastrously <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah. And um, that continues to be true to this day. But there's also a thing that I had not yet realized at that point in my life, which was that especially when I'm sicker and more and more, especially when I've been on dialysis, very occasionally, uh, my brain in its attempts to sort of fill in these holes that pop up or exist can sometimes create a memory. And I think that's sort of true for lots of people, but they just don't realize it to the extent you do. Right, because I have an extremely reliable witness in you and in my parents uh, and other people in my life. And it's a very, very disconcerting situation. But I, like I said, I had not yet realized that then. But it's a, it's a thing that happens occasionally. Or actually, it has not happened for a number of years now, thank goodness. But it was a thing that was in my life at that point that my mind and my memory, in some cases my decision-making, was not always reliable, and I knew that, but I couldn't tell when that was. And so when a situation like this arises, like I was saying, it, it becomes very scary because I'm trying to do the right thing. My health is on the line. I have a doctor who's upset with me saying, you're making the wrong call, and I'm really certain that I'm not, but I want to be helpful. And honestly, if you'd taken double tests in some cases, yes, it would have meant less blood for me, and it would have meant another poke and would have been painful, but I was going to say no skin off my nose, but <laughs> it's like a little bit less blood in my body, but I would have been okay. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I guess I just wanted to kind of put that into the picture because this becomes I, in some ways a more important idea going forward that I start to recognize that um, I am unreliable for myself sometimes. But sometimes not as unreliable as you might think. Or as I fear, Yeah. So I think we're going to wind down this story with you in the hospital with your mystery stomach problems. Okay. Stay tuned. And yeah, in the next episode, we'll continue that narrative and get into your second year at Central Washington University. Right. But I think now we're going to move on to listener mail. Oh, okay. And we have one letter and it's from your Uncle Michael. Oh, okay. And he writes in that he's been enjoying the podcast, and he um, he says, I find it so interesting to hear about your individual and collective thoughts and experiences in dealing with a chronic condition and all its permutations. As you might imagine, I was keen to hear episode seven. <laughs> Donating my kidney to Ari was a pretty incredible experience, one that I'm thankful to have been able to do and a decision I have never regretted. I'm writing to share a couple of thoughts regarding my experience. One of the factors that led to the transplant not happening until April of 2003 was my insistence on waiting until OHSU developed expertise in laparoscopic transplants. Having seen the long recovery time my father had gone through, I'm interjecting here to say that was Ari's grandfather who gave him his first transplant, yes. and having researched a bit about the impact of open nephrectomies, having the procedure be done laparoscopically became a condition for me to proceed with the donation. You may not recall this, but at one point in the process, I received a call from a transplant coordinator at OHSU who excitedly told me they had a doctor undergoing training in the procedure and that Ari and I could be the first at OHSU to have it done once the doctor finished his training. I do remember that. <laughs> I declined the offer as I didn't really want to be part of anyone's early learning curve. No. I said that after a fair number of successful procedures had been done at OHSU, I'd be happy to proceed. Another aspect to share is that there's a real advantage to having elective surgery scheduled some months ahead of the actual surgery. The long lead time gave me time to prepare. For example, there were doubts, fears, and concerns that arose prior to the surgery. Fortunately, I had the time available to process these experiences, mainly through research and lots of positive visualization and regular meditation. In fact, it was during this time that I started my meditation practice, something I continue to this day. Mm-hmm. When the day of the surgery arrived, I was nervous and excited and ready to get it done with, 
but I wasn't fearful or concerned. I'd visualized so much around the experience, i.e. a successful procedure and successful implementation and subsequent functioning of my kidney in Ari, along with a short hospital stay and a quick and full recovery for each of us, and I was confident that things would go swimmingly, which they did. <laughs> While we had all hoped, Ari especially, that the first donated kidney from Paul, that's Ari's grandfather, mm -hmm. would work for a very long time. The fact that it did not was of help to me in terms of refining my expectations around donating. It helped me realize that no matter how well matched my kidney was with Ari, and it was a very good match, yeah. there was and always would be a chance of rejection happening. I was able to go into the transplant knowing that the reason for my donating was not predicated on whether the transplant was successful or how long the kidney might function in Ari's body. It was the very act of giving, and thus giving the kidney an opportunity to work, that was the important part. Lastly, in getting ready to donate and after donating, I found many sources of support. The main source, and one available to this day for living organ donors and people thinking about becoming a living organ donor, is www.livingdonorsonline.org. Run mostly by and for living donors, it's a great resource for information and support. I fully consider my donation to have been a success in many different ways for Ari and for myself. Yeah. Even if, spoiler alert, the kidney didn't last <laughs> as long as we all hoped. And then he says, thank you again for the fun and informative kidney cast. No, oh, yeah. And I really liked Michael's letter and I was excited about reading it because I think it's really great to have the donor side a little bit and mm -hmm. probably more people listening to this podcast would be on that end of the equation than on the donee side. Yeah. If I had to guess. So I think that his story is probably one that might be more useful or more identifiable for a lot of people. Yeah. I also feel a little bit bad that anybody, especially Michael, who wrote such a beautiful letter, but your parents have written great letters and other people have written it with questions. They all have to come through me and my awkward reading. <laughs> <laughs> I was obviously really glad and touched to to hear from Michael about this because, um, well, and, and lots of other people too, because I have been getting messages and you've been getting messages from lots of people saying, oh, I've been listening to it and I was part of this story at this part. So I was really intrigued by this one episode or that one episode. Um, I feel like I'm lumping you all in together, those of you that written in. And that's not what I mean to do. Each time somebody's gotten in touch with me about that, it's been a really special and individual moment or uh, letter or experience. I, I've really, really appreciated that. And just about everybody has added something to my knowledge uh, or understanding of this story, which is, I think, which emphasizes something that's really important to me. And I I honestly don't know how well I'm doing th this in this podcast, which is, um, this is my story, my experience with, you know, my chronic illness and, you know, specifically transplants and all that stuff. But it's also all of our story. At the point where we have arrived or so, this is now your story, Laura, unquestionably. Like, it's not just, well, and this other thing was happening. This is your story. And it's been my parents' story this whole time. You know, they've been less involved at certain points because I've been geographically far away. But they're my parents. And <laughs> it's, it's a genetic disorder. It's part of them and part of me and it's it's my sister's story it's my grandfather's story it's it's everybody's you know um like we said earlier i was at my cousin's graduation who's michael's son and it's his story because it's his dad's story and it's, it's all of our stories it's it's my story it's my family's story it's my friend's story it's it's everybody and that's really important to me like i said i don't know how well i'm doing that because it's obviously easiest for me to just be like, and then this happened to me, or, and then I did this. <laughs> but everybody that I have come into contact with, this impacts to a greater or lesser degree. And it's really important to me not just to recognize that, but I hope to try to include that at least a little bit. Um, and I, I have some hopes that maybe in the future we can integrate that a little bit more directly um, into this uh, podcast, but for now, I guess I'm, I'm just going to say that, that like all of you who've written in, please, other people feel free if you have memories or have questions or want to share anything, because it's really been meaningful to me to to read and hear about your part of our shared story. And we're going to wrap things up 
this episode with my same final question as always. <laughs> Ari, how are you feeling right now? Well, right now I'm okay. But this morning and yesterday a little bit, I had a little bit of uh, tummy troubles. And I really do mean a little bit uh, as for reasons we will continue to get into some of that stomach stuff a very small amount mostly has stuck around a little bit i'm a little bit more fragile now than i ever was before all of the things we started talking about today happened and so sometimes i'm just a little oh not not awesome um but i'm also like pretty great for me so i'm happy about it and we're gonna wrap up right there if you want to send us an email, we're at kidneycast at gmail.com. We really like getting your letters yeah. and your questions and stories. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast. We're also on Twitter at kidneycast. All of our episodes are available on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you, Ari, so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Kidneycast. Cast.